Welcome to Pop Parenting, Season 2, where therapist and author Avram Nadigal and myself, Ellie Bass, drink a lot of coffee and discuss family dynamics, relationships, parenting, and more each week using 2000s movies to illustrate complex situations and examples. By the way, Pop Parenting is now rated in the top 20 Jewish podcasts to watch in 2021, all thanks to you. So thank you for all of your support, feedback, and movie suggestions. Please keep them coming. And don't forget to subscribe. We're available on all podcast platforms. Okay, here we go. Okay. I got to watch so many fun things to like remember this film and you know it's the 20th anniversary of this film this year oh no i didn't know that i just saw an interview with cameron crow for with in rolling stone magazine with the actress who pay, played penny lane what was yeah name, kate, Hutch- kate hudson kate, yeah uh who's the guy who plays the guitarist billy crud billy crudup and patrick fugit yeah so they yeah, oh you saw a, it they sh- I watched the whole interview on YouTube because um, they showed, played it on YouTube um, with Rolling Stone. And gosh, it was so fun to watch. Like, it was so fun to hear their stories. Did you watch the whole interview? No, I didn't. I didn't. Oh, my gosh. It was so fun. And, and one of my absolute favorite lines in the film, you know, that moment, like Cameron Crowe is a meticulous director, like very insistent on st- people sticking with their lines, the nuances. But that one moment during Tiny Dancer where Penny Lane turns to William and he says, I have to go home. And she said, and she does the hand thing and she's like, you are home. You are home. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was improvised. Oh, really? That was not in the script. That's great. It was perfection. That's great. That's the line that always like, oh, it just, you know, there's a couple of moments in that film that just crack your heart in two. And um, I would say there's that, the line um, where he tells her about that she was sold for a case of beer yeah. and, and the look and how she just, she just breaks in front of you. And then also the line that Philip Seymour Hoffman delivers with such pathos and melancholy, like the only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with another person when you're both uncool. And that to me just, oh, like those are the moments of like genius in this film, just total genius. So, um, okay, let's jump in. Let's do it. Um, welcome okay. back everyone to Pop Parenting. Hello, hello, hello. We are talking about <laughs> Almost Famous. Such a good movie. Um, interestingly enough, I, I also heard in that interview that everyone at Rolling Stone loves that movie. Hmm. Because as like a side thing, it's also like advocating for journalism, you know, like it's really saying like, how do you be like, don't be friends with those guys, you know, like you got to report um, from a very unbiased perspective. So how do you not be friends with those guys? So it was really interesting to hear that they love that movie there. You know, I, I have to say, I, I don't get very caught up ever emotionally with actors or famous people dying or taking their life. I just don't. I mean, they're actors, they're Whatever, they're not my family, they're not my friends. Right. The one rare, rare person who I, I feel it every time I see him act is Seymour Philip Hoffman. Yeah. There's something about 
uh, well, I've, I've mentioned this before in this podcast. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite movies, but very melancholy, is mm. Love, Liza, written and directed by his brother. Um, mm. There's something about Seymour Philip Hoffman that brought something to the screen that I don't think I've ever seen since. Mm. I don't think I've ever seen an actor like him since. And whenever I see him in a film, and I forget, right? Because I forget he played all of these before he yeah. became sort of the primary star yeah. in films. He was playing these, you know, uh, these um, kind of, what, what do you call those small roles? Character roles. Yeah. Uh, you know, in films. Supporting Anyways, roles, but supporting like essential roles. roles. Right. And watching him in this film uh, as sort of like the Yoda like figure, the yeah. wise elder, one could say. Totally. Uh, it was it was just such a treat to uh, to see him. But okay, I, again, we can really. I have a funny story. I know, you and I are so many get good very geeky this on this, but we have to get to right. the parenting stuff too because we are called pop parenting. Okay. All right. So let's go. All right, let's do it. Um, okay. On one fit. I'm actually not going to do a hugely detailed one. I'm going to try to keep it super tight. So On One Foot, almost famous is the story of young William Miller, who we see at the very beginning with his mother and his sister, played by Zoe Deschanel and incredibly by Frances McDormand, who is perfect in this role. Um, his Clearly, she's a single mother. He's growing up with his older sister. His older sister eventually leaves because she feels repressed by the man, aka her mother, and not being able to do what she wants and listen to music. Frances McDormand is clearly um, worried about her parents. She's a college professor. She doesn't want them eating sugar, and she doesn't want them doing drugs or listening to music. Um, and as William, we see uh, as his sister leaves, she turns him on to music. She leaves him this incredible collection of like Led Zeppelin and um, uh, The Who and uh, just an amazing collection of albums. And she basically says, go put this on, it will set you free. And so then you see him a few, a few years later and he's obsessed with music and he's kind of an outcast in high school. He's skipped grades. Yeah. Hold on, you're on mute, Ephraim. Uh, by the way, you know what's thank you. You know what's interesting about that line? We heard the same sort of line in um, uh, uh, Natalie Portman when she takes the earphones and she goes, "Listen to the song. It will." Yes. What was the line? Listen to the song. It will. Yeah, something. it'll like change your life or something. It'll change your life, yeah. right? And yeah. there was another movie so also from Garden State. There was another movie. It, it'll come to me, but um, this idea uh, in film where in the script music is seen as almost like a redemption uh, talked about almost yeah. in sort of like a godly like sort of a way that if you yeah. do this thing if you listen and i and I, i'm telling you ellie i'm telling you anybody who remembers their adolescence will remember a time period with one song it's it's that right it's that right environment when the right song hits yeah. you at the right that it almost was like taking a power pill. You know, for mm -hmm. me, it was Motley Crue showed the devil when I was getting bullied, but right. everybody has that moment. And I just love in those films when, when you say, if you've never experienced it, it sounds like, it sounds hokey. But if you've experienced that, where yeah. a song changes your it's life, and it happens in, an, it's transformative and it yeah. happens in an instant. That's right. It's fantastic. Anyways, oh, sorry, right. okay. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, so it's a gorgeous piece of film and it really creates the trajectory for his life going forward when he finally starts to listen to that music and it, and it changes his experience of the world. 
Um, so he wants to be a writer. He's growing up in the 70s um, towards the end of the rock and roll era where Rolling Stone and Cream Magazine, I don't think Spin Magazine was around yet, but- Oh, like, no, 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 no. This yeah, was like so this right is Cream before and Rolling Stone. And so, and those are, you know, the people that he wants to work with is what he wants to do. And he writes, he does the rock column for his school paper. Um, but he's been sending articles into Rolling Stone. <clears throat> he's skipped a grade, so he's younger than everybody in school, totally is the other guy, like the weirdo in his class. But he eventually sends a bunch of articles to Lester, I believe is the uh, Lester Bangs, I think is the name of Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, who is a writer for Cream magazine and who thinks his stuff is good. And they end up becoming this very strange friendship because clearly Lester needs a pal and an admirer and William needs a mentor and a father figure. And so they really connect with each other. And um, apparently Philip Seymour Hoffman had the flu the entire time he was filming this, this movie. So you can see that in his character because he's always kind of snarfling and like really uncomfortable. And, and apparently that's like the legit thing that was going on. So it's really wild to see it as part of his character. Um, so they become fast friends and then uh, William gets the opportunity to go and write an article for Cream um, and he goes to see, who was the actual band he was going to see? Oh, hold on. Uh, was, it, was it Black Sabbath? Yes, that's right. It was Black Sabbath. He's supposed to go write an article on that and Stillwater is opening for them and Stillwater is the main band of the film. And he just gets embroiled in this, in the band, in what are called the band aids, which are groupies that say that they're there for the music. Um, and in waiting to get in to see Stillwater, he meets the infamous Penny Lane, which was really Kate Hudson's breakthrough role and becomes involved in the entire scene of music. He starts traveling with Stillwater. The article eventually gets picked up by Rolling Stone. Lester tells him to tell Rolling Stone it's a quote unquote think piece, which like really makes them very excited. So he ends up on tour with them and he's supposed to be following this sort of mid-level band that's about to make it big and write about their stories. And the stories that are happening are the ego battles in the band itself, say between the lead singer and the guitarist who's a brilliant guitarist and feels that he's better than everybody else in the band. The guitarist played by Billy Crudup is uh, named Russell, and he has a long-standing love affair with Penny Lane, but only when they're on tour, because when he goes home, he has a girlfriend who seems like she's going to eventually become his wife. Um, and it's really a story of a band on the road, the shenanigans that people get up to, the sort of unreality of that life. And William Miller being a young 16, 15 year old boy touring with this circus, trying to understand, you know, this life that he sees as the pinnacle of everything, gets a real insider view into how these lives are mess messy and complicated and definitely not perfect just because they're rock stars. Um, And I think that's all I need to say. Like if people haven't seen the movie, like you should just see the movie. <laughs> you really should. And apparently there are two versions of this movie. Yeah. 
And so um, Cameron Crowe and uh, Kate Hudson both said that they prefer the untitled, which is, I think, like the director's cut. So, and I actually haven't seen that one, so I want to see it. Yeah. Um, okay, I think that's where we are. And and part of the movie is also Francis McDormand, who plays um, William's mother, um, trying to, <coughs> excuse me, trying to track him while he's on tour to get him to stay in school and to come home. And she's freaking out, worried. She freaks everyone out that she speaks to because she's very intense and she's totally only in the character of the mother with everyone that she interacts with. Um, and is very, you know, knows what her son is around. Um, and, and eventually each character has their own reckoning with who they think they are and what their life should be about. And, and part of that comes through the wise elders in the film, which I think is really beautiful. Yeah. I cannot wait to hear what you have in your notes. Well, first of all, just to, you know, comment on um, the culture of uh, groupies and, and rock uh, people. Uh, I was in uh, three bands in Montreal. One of them did, uh, did, did, did well for a Montreal band. They're still, they're still actually doing well, a band called Slaves on Dope um, that eventually were signed by uh, Ozzy Osbourne's wife, Sharon Osbourne in LA. And they actually did, they did, you know, they were doing okay in the States and now they, they just, they release uh, stuff every now and then. One of the things I learned, I mean, I went into rock and roll because it is quite clear when you're young and powerless that rock and roll and being on a stage, you're elevated above everybody else. You're playing very loud things. Mm -hmm. um, there's a, there's power in that. And I wanted that power very badly. Um, I went in late. And one of the things that you discover is, uh, well, what I discovered is that there are certain musicians who understand how the whole game works. I didn't, but, I, and I'm not throwing anybody in the bus, so that I'm purposely not mentioning any names, but um, when I was in one of these bands, uh, someone came up to me, one of my bandmates and said, you know, right from the get-go, we have to flirt. We have to make friends with more of the, let's say, homely looking women in the crowd. Um, and I thought, why? First of all, in my head, I'm thinking, why the homely? Like, I, I'm, I, I'm in a band. I want the, you know, the most attractive <laughs> woman in the crowd. And, and his comment was that, no, what you want is you want to you want to flirt with the most homely looking women in the crowd because they will become they will put up your posters around Montreal. They will do a, and I thought he was nuts. Like I thought like no one is going to do that. It's ridiculous. And I was in a band previous to Slaves on Dope. So it never happened in that band. Well, he did his thing, this guy with <laughs> one of the other guys in my band after every set, he'd go into the crowd and, and not sexually, by the way, just, you know, becoming friends with, and within like four weeks, it was happening. It was weird. We had this like group of five, mm women a couple of guys too and they they would so their identity became part of our band and they would do all these things for us they would poster they would get his gigs they would do all this and whatever shenanigans happened i don't know because I, I was like the poet guy i was the one writing the, the music <laughs> but i have to say that if you're watching the film and you're thinking oh this is an accurate like people have more self than that i can tell you for a fact it is true that they're there is a subset of people who go to concerts. It is part of their identity, and they yep. are looking to attach their wagon or their, you know, their wagon to your horse. 
Um, And they feel powerful by being associated um, with that. And this is where you get into really dangerous stuff when you have vulnerable people with vulnerable, powerful people, young musician types intermingling. And this is where you hear things like, for example, one of my favorite artists in Canada, Matthew Good, from the Matthew Good Band of Vancouver, a whole bunch of women came out this year, actually, or last year, saying that, you know, he, he's been sexually abusive, and some women use the word rape, and I was shocked, and I could not believe what I'm hearing, but they're all coming out now, and I guarantee you, if you scratch any of those bands, uh, Led Zeppelin, uh, Jimi Hendrix, I guarantee you there's stories like this, what was going on in the 70s, so right. all this to say, there is a very, uh, to use a Jungian term, shadowy part of rock and roll culture. Mm-hmm. I am sure it goes on to this day. Uh, I think this film accurately depicts uh, the behind the scenes stuff. Um, yeah, for I sure. I mean, um, you know, full disclosure, I, I was part of the kind of goth punk ska scene in Toronto growing up. And I actually was the lead singer in a band and kind of was in that whole scenorama around Toronto and playing in different things. Um, Actually, the the song one of the co-songwriters and drummer in the band um, is now a guy named Chili Gonzalez, who does a lot of production stuff in Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was a wild time. I mean, following bands around. I think I spent all of my money in high school because I worked all through high school. I spent all of my money on live shows, going to see concerts, and whether it was like you know my friend's punk band at Ildico's or like you know a stadium show with like Beastie Boys it was whatever I could see I would see and so um, that world was magical magical and anything that has magic also has you know it has good things and not good things so you got to be like really aware of what you're in but but there was the definitely the what I love about this film is it has that the seduction of that whole world and the and the magic of it and the innocence that can be there when yeah it's just the music is transformative um but then recognizing that what's underneath all of that magic is often people and people who have needs and who are somewhat broken so yeah i think it does such a good job of portraying both of those aspects the love of it and the challenges that come along with it well, I think it's a good setup because um, one of the, uh, I, I found three main themes in this film that I thought would be good to talk about. Um, so the first one has to do with uh, a term in, in my world uh, called pseudo self versus solid self. Uh, one could say fake self versus a clear sense of, of self. Um, and the the line in the film that I'm thinking of here, Ellie, um, now I only have the names. I forget who said it. I guess Jeff is one of the guys in the band. I don't know which one, but this is- Yeah, uh, Jeff is the lead singer. That's Jason Lee. Oh, he's the lead singer. Okay. So this is the situation where um, the article comes out where they, they, they've heard about the article and Jeff says, uh, we come off, we come off like we're buffoons. And Russell, the guitarist says- maybe we just don't see ourselves as the way we really are. Right. And I, I, I thought that line, um, it, it just, it makes me think about uh, how, how do we see ourselves? Is it an accurate depiction of who we really are? Mm-hmm. What does it even mean 
you know, to talk about who we really are. Uh, this also made me think about the Breakfast Club line mm. with, um, uh, what's his name, the geek? Um, Michael Anthony not, Hall. Yeah, but, uh, Anthony Michael name? Hall. Yeah, what was his name in the film? Uh, mm. He was uh, not Andrew. Andrew was the jock. Anyways. I don't know. Um, I'm, I'm out of that has, movie now. I can't remember. When he when he's running the composition. Brian. Like, Brian. When he's like, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? <laughs> right? Um, and so I was thinking about that. And so I thought we can sit here and just talk about this idea um, using this idea of uh, from family systems world of, you know, what is a pseudo self? What is a solid self? And given the fact that Dr. Bowen thought most of us have more pseudo self than solid self, what can anybody do to nudge things more, to develop more of a solid sense of who we are um, so that if a report comes out on us and it accurately reflects us. We're not surprised. Right. Or you're on a date and, you know, you're dating someone and they say to you, oh, you know, they make a comment about you and you're completely taken aback that they see you in a certain way, but you don't see yourself in that way. How can you become a little bit more aware of uh, the accuracy of who you are and what you stand for? Because I really do think that is the journey of becoming more emotionally mature right. um, to break through the... Um, the, the 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 sort of psychological cosmetics that we wear um, right. through life. Okay, so one of the, here's something I thought of, and it's apropos because of music. I might have shared this with you before. Gord Downey, the late Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip, was being interviewed um, on the radio once, and they were taking callers. And so this young woman calls up, and she's like, "Oh my God, I'm speaking to Gordon Downey. You're my favorite. Oh, I love you. I love you. You're the best, and you've changed my life." and and Downey was a smart guy. Like he's a, he's an intelligent, intelligent guy. So, but he's also, uh, he's, he, he, he's quick with his wit. And so he, he, he kind of laughs and he goes, he's like, well, he's like, be careful how you choose your heroes. He's like, I'm a, I think he said, I'm a 43 year old man or whatever, married with kids. And he's like, and I still need the audience to validate me every mm -hmm. night. Right. And he didn't say anything else. And I thought that was, that was just a very, it was a brilliant, um, uh, you know, self-observation of what Dr. David Snarch calls a reflected sense of self. I only know I'm good when the audience applauds. When the audience doesn't applaud, I don't know who I am. And I think a lot of artists and musicians, Ellie, now, wouldn't you say that there is a sense that you create your art, but there's a lot of artists, they don't know if it's good until someone says, Good job. I don't think it's just artists. I don't think I know many people who aren't like that. True. To be honest, True. like it's just, you know, if you're an artist, you have more of an opportunity or a platform to be able to get that validation potentially. Um, anybody in the public eye does. Um, but I, I, I don't know many people whose locus of self-definition and whether or not they're worthy or not lies solely within themselves. I think most people are always trying to figure out if they're good based on whether or not other people think they're good. And that, you know, really to me points to that idea of, you know, solid self is self-defining whether your value, you know, what your value is and, and, and understanding what that is. And I don't think it's a hard, it's a, a mysterious practice of how to do that. I don't think it's something we talk about much. Um, mainly what we do is sort of paper over the fact that we don't feel valuable with how many people can we get to tell us that we are. 
Um, so I think it's not just in the art world. I just think in the artist's world, you have more availability of good wallpaper <laughs> and lots of people who could potentially hopefully tell you how fantastic you are. So you don't ever have to really deal with that. You don't know who you are. Um, and that's sort of the, the lure of it, I think, in my opinion. Yeah, well, let's, you know, you mentioned solid self. Let's start there. Well, then we'll define pseudo self. And then um, I think that this, uh, and maybe we can tie this in Ellie to um, parenting, because I think there's a tie in in parenting. Yeah. So I think the first thing to say is that Dr. Bowen understood the way that we are shaped as human beings. He used the word programming programming. And he said it usually happens in utero and even before the child is born. This is very important to understand. This is different than attachment theory, which sees uh, things happen more between the uh, attachment between a mother and a baby. Dr. Bowen saw this as um, something that happens even before. So you take two parents, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they both bring their anxieties and their hopes and their worries. They want to have a kid. Okay, so if they have four miscarriages before the first kid, Bowen would say that anxiety around miscarriages will be brought into the programming of this unborn child yet. Mm -hmm. If you lose your job before you have a child, that anxiety would be brought in. Or the opposite. If you have a lot of extended family and there's lots of support, um, you know, and it calms you down, that will bring the programming into this unborn child. So he talked about things as programming, like a computer program. One right. could say. And the problem with programming is it's hard to reprogram the programming. So it, it's, yep. it's hard. It's really hard. And so he came up with these two terms and these two terms come from the programming. So this isn't something that happens in adolescence. It really happens quite early on. Mm. So he talks about, so what is solid self? So when you think about solid self in relation to a child, like our, our kids, Ellie, for example, it has to do with the parent's sense of solid self and right. what gets transferred over to the kids. So here's what solid self is according to Dr. Bowen. Here's some points. So this is who I am. This is what I believe. And this is what I stand for. And those things are consistent. And this is the key. When you're on your own, having an Americano in a coffee shop, and when you're with the people you love, this is tricky because most young 20 somethings say to me, I know who I am. I know what I stand for. Yeah. When you're, when you're at, um, you know, whatever, uh, Java hut, having a muffin reading the New York times you do, but isn't it interesting when you go home for Christmas, for example, or for Hanukkah, mm -hmm. you know, you're fighting with your mother, like you're seven again you know, and you're taking positions in a rebellious way just to like give it to your parents, right? So it's important that solid self is solid self. It's solid regardless of what's happening politically or, right. or what's happening in your home. Next. Or in relationships. Like or, so many people, and, and, that solid self becomes suddenly very flexible. Okay. Okay. Now, Ellie, I want you to hold that thought. That's a very important point, what you just said, because that is the one of the definitions of what is pseudo-self. Mm. So what you just said is actually is critical because that's what Dr. Bowen observed in people. We'll get, we'll get there. That, that's okay. an important point. Okay, <laughs> next. This is what I will do or will not do. And I define myself by that to my kids, my friends, my family. And I don't do it on a soapbox. People with a solid self, you know they have a solid self. It's the way they carry themselves. Mm -hmm. And you know, it's not like, you know, you have to push the boundaries with these people. You have a very clear sense of they will do this and they will not. And you can see this when I work with families and kids and parents. 
I can see that in my office very quickly, um, how, uh, you know, parents define themselves to their kids and the kids know. So for example, I'll, I'll have parents in my office who will say, we don't know what we're doing. We don't know what we're doing. We're just, the kids are all over the place, right? Right. And I'll say to them, you know what? I bet you there's certain things your kids know they can't do. And, and, and let's say the, you know, the mother will turn to the father and go, nope, no, nope. the kids have no clue. So I'll give some examples of things I've heard from other families. And then they'll look at me and they go, no, they wouldn't do that. <laughs> you know? Like they'll say, no, my kid wouldn't do that. You know, I'm like, right. well, then you, your solidity or, or your clarity on that is clear in that way. Meaning yeah. you have the capacity there, you have the capacity somewhere else. And that's important right. for anxious parents to understand that it is not true for, let's say, most families that there are no principles in this home there probably are there's a lot of loosey-goosey stuff elsewhere right okay so there's that it, it, your life is made up of clearly defined beliefs opinions convictions and life principles now this is a tricky one ellie you know all the self-help books talk about going to the forest for a few days and thinking about what your values are and journaling and and then you come out of the forest and you, you're clearing your principles you and I have talked about Viktor Frankl, the, the psychiatrist, the Jewish psychiatrist in Auschwitz who wrote Mansur's for Meaning. What he said was, you don't come up with your principles. You intuit them over a lifetime through challenge. So yes, you should contemplate these things. Of course, it's very important to contemplate your life and what you believe. But the truth of the matter is it's through travel, having children, being in relationship, struggling. Mm -hmm. It's through that, that tension of life that we, we decide, oh, this is what I really stand for. I mean, I right. thought I knew what I wanted, but now that I've come through this experience, I'm clear on this principle. Um, and I right. think that's like a lot of them you discover through pressure. Exactly. That's and, right. And if there's no pressure, it's very hard to discover them. Exactly. Exactly. That's right. And that's one of the reasons why uh, Bowen was very disillusioned with psychoanalysis back in the 50s and why he, he developed his own thing. He thought that what therapy does is therapy doesn't create enough pressure. Mm. Uh, it creates a cocoon of comfort to sit there. You're paying someone to really right. accept you and, 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 and you could say anything in that room. And there really right. isn't, unless you, unless you physically assault your therapist or you don't shower or something, you can come back and you can say whatever you want. And it's always going to be okay in this office. Um, Bowen thought that all that does is extends the immaturity uh, right. over years and years. So, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and, and here's the last point about a solid sense of self. You think that people with a solid sense of self are stubborn, but they're not. People with a solid sense of self, they change their thinking based on new knowledge and experiences. Yep. Okay. But they, and here's your point, Ellie, and we're going to come back to this with pseudo self. They don't change their thinking and principles to appease others, to calm other people down, to get a raise at work, to get someone to love you, or to not get, let's say, we'll use Barry Weiss's stuff, canceled. Right. That's right. That you, you are able to retain your sense of self, but you change based on feedback in the real world where you think, you know, I had this thought or this principle, but I right. went through this experience and I've rethought my position on this thing. Bowen right. said that's like a solid way. self isn't averse to updating your operating system, right? Exactly. You know, it's flexible, it's rude, but it's rooted and flexible. Whereas pseudo self, like, 
it's flexible without the roots. Well, okay, so yeah, so let's get into pseudo self because I think it's important because I think what, what happens in this movie is you got a lot of people with pseudo self. Mm. And what's nice about the film is it does show you how it's a crucible. And as the film ends, all of these characters, what I would say, have developed a bit more solid self through the crucible mm. of heartbreak. Okay, so let, let's just define pseudo self. So you, you've actually quite done it. You've done a pretty good job there, really, actually summing up what pseudo self is. But let's just <laughs> let me go through the, the, some of the, the points here. So pseudo self, it's a self that is shaped by social pressures, a self that is shaped by social pressure. So, for example, Ellie, you and I have talked about this, what's happening in the culture right now. So you go to work, you're the vice president at Procter and Gamble. Mm-hmm. Okay. You live in a beautiful mansion in a wealthy part of town and you're white <laughs> and you're living a really nice life. But when you're at work, you speak to speak of the oppressed. You know, you speak to speak of progressive, whatever the, whatever the stuff is, right. because it's good branding for the company. Right. You don't really believe it. You don't, right. it's not, you know, you don't live your life like that. So you're living one self at work and one self when you come home. And I have to say, mm-hmm. some of the, the pushback from, let's say, a certain political class to this kind of stuff is, is on the nose, meaning that you're hypocrites. Right. You're a bunch right. of hypocrites. You change your flag when it's pride, for example, but we know what's going on. And I think there's some truth to that. There's a book, by the way, coming out in August by, uh, I believe, I believe he's in finance. Sounds like a really bright guy called Woke Inc. How industry is using woke to make more money, actually. Right. So pseudo self, um, it's a self that is shaped by social pressures. So what do these people do in these companies? I, I know. I mean, I, I, I have a marketing background. I know what you, what you do is you monitor Twitter and Facebook and see what is most popular right now. And you change your company mission so that you don't get a zets, as we say in Yiddish. You don't get a slap. Right. Okay. And, and so Bowen would say that is a company operating on pseudo self. So next week, if a new uh, trend comes in, you know, and that's the big thing, right. that your company will fly that flag. Right. Okay. And we call that branding. And I think what uh, I think what I would say is you'll have a lot of marketing people say that's just good business. Mm-hmm. That's just good business. I would argue, I don't know what you think, Ellie, but I would argue that there are businesses out there that have more solid self in their mission and what they stand for and that they don't, they don't buckle to cultural trends. This is who we are. And this is who we've, we've always been. And this is what we stand for. And we will lose business, but we are not going to cater whatever we're doing to whatever is happening out there. I'm Mm -hmm. thinking specifically Ellie, by the way, I'm thinking specifically about maybe in in our world, in the Jewish community, uh, more, let's call it um, traditional, you know, synagogues or whatever, who have a certain mission. It's like, look, you want to come in. It's a big family here. Come on in. But know Mm -hmm. this, we have these sort of principles about Jewish law, about this. So long as you're okay with that, you're more than welcome, but we are not going to start changing things because the culture is moving this way. Right. Okay. And I got to tell you, just based on my own observation, we talked about this last podcast, by the way, my hunch is the, the movements in our community who are always sort of altering things and they're changing the law to try to, you know, keep up with the, they're struggling with their member. I'm talking dollars and cents, not God. Yep. They are struggling with their membership. Whereas the more traditional shows, they're growing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the numbers don't lie. 
yep. I would say. I'm curious to hear your thoughts. You're, you're, you're involved in the community. What, what, what do you think? So, I mean, the more I hear from both sides of the polar opposites that are society right now, that people don't feel like they can actually, that they're thinking all kinds of things, but they can't say them out loud um, on both the left and the right. Um, alarmingly so, the, the amount of people who say that on a regular basis, like, you know, I know I hang with this crowd, but the truth is I feel this, but I could never say that. Um, you know, or I'd be canceled or I wouldn't be allowed to come to dinner anymore. I would blah, 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 blah. I think that's, there is an alarming amount of performative politics that are going on. Um, and I think that's really a problem. I definitely see that the places where people just say, this is who we are. This is what we stand by. This is how we're going to proceed, um, and are truthful to the, to the amount that they can be truthful you know, like, because ultimately organizations and schools and businesses are people, it's the people behind the business that make those decisions, um, uh, are definitely places where people feel seen, heard and understood because they no longer, everybody recognizes disingenuous behavior. Um, you know, we were talking about this yesterday about a, a particular article that seemed to be a dialogue between two opposing ideologies, but it was just performative. Everybody reading that who knows what's going on in that scene is like nobody there was speaking the truth and it was a waste of time. And so, and you don't feel comfortable in those spaces. So people are looking for places where people are seemingly truthful and, and not afraid to speak their truth. And, and you get that in different, in different places, but um, yeah, I, I think it's, it, we're in a world right now where people are looking for people who have solid self. Um, we're kind of sick of pseudo selves, but uh, it's sometimes hard to tell the difference if you yourself don't have a solid self. Yeah. And I, I think that, um, two more points about pseudo self. And I think that, I think there's a way to intuit solid self, but I think more importantly than that, there's a way for the individual yeah. to orient oneself to solid self. So two more quick points. When you think about Penny Lane's character, okay. Mm -hmm. You think about Penny Lane. Okay. At the beginning of the film, you know, Ellie, when she was saying, uh, uh, I forget, Ellie, what point of the film is it when uh, the reporter, when he's a kid, and he says to Penny Lane, they're using you or something. And she's like, no, like, do you, do you remember that scene when he's kind of like, yeah, I, I don't park. know. This, this is this when is, he tells her about he sold you for 50 bucks and a but, but even of beer. No, but even before that, you, you, you get this sense. She's like, we're we're part of this whole thing, man. Like we're more, actually we're more powerful. They need us, right? She is not accurately seeing the reality of the situation. Okay. Mm -hmm. And, and I think Cameron Crowe does a good job of doing that in just the way she's so over the top with her, you know, people with a sense of solid self, they, they're not showy. Mm. They don't have to be showy. Right. I find that when people, I, I could tell you for me, when I'm on a soapbox screaming out whatever I think, you know, I can tell that's pseudo self. It's more pseudo self than solid self. Hey. You know, my solid self is actually much quieter. It's more refined. It, it comes out of my actions more than what I say, actually. Mm. So I find that it's Penny Lane's pseudo self, though she would argue in that film, that's my solid self. Right. 
but it's a well-constructed self meaning me at my most free exactly and and me at my most free and i construct all this so i i get taken advantage of meaning she's not an idiot she's smart Mm. she knows he's got a lover or a girlfriend somewhere she knows that right but she tells her she creates this whole story right that he's actually really in love with me it's the pseudo self that 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 allows us to believe in the myths and the lies about what isn't facing us right in our face. So I think that's an important point of pseudo self, mm-hmm. okay? That what we share with the outside world looks solid, but actually deep deep down within, it just changes and morphs to whatever it is to bring us a certain amount of pleasure, okay? So I think Penny Lane is a good example of, um, of uh, uh, pseudo self, especially, you know, in particular with Russell. Um, one thing Bowen said about pseudo self is that it's a pretend self that functions in relationship to approval from others. Now, this is what you said before about relationship. What Bowen said is pseudo self doesn't develop on your own. It always develops in relationship to others. So let's take parents and kids. Where do you see pseudo self? So here's one, Ellie, I'm going to share one. Maybe you can think of one. One of the ways that I see pseudo self in relationship with parenting is when parents come into parenting with a certain amount of, uh, let's call it immaturity or anxiety. Now, I don't know about you, I got my truckload of it. So this idea that some people (laughs) don't and some people have it is a myth. We all have it. Right. And so what I've noticed with my kids is on my areas of immaturity, I need them to be a certain way to calm me down. Okay. And if I'm not careful with this, what I will do is I will act as if I'm a strong leader and a parent, but really I'm trying to orient them towards something. So I could be calmer, right. okay? And so you hear this, here's the areas that I hear pseudo self operating um, in a lot of ways in, in parent and child. School marks, mm-hmm. f- friends, um, what else? Can you think of any other areas, Ellie, where solid self takes a backseat to pseudo self, where uh, it's a pretend self and it functions in relationship? Well, it seems like, I mean, one of the ways that I look at that idea for my own growth and work is pseudo self is also built because it helps meet needs that aren't met. And so in a family, if you're an artist, but what everybody values is monetary success and being a doctor or a lawyer, you're going to have to build in order to get the love affirmation and approval that you need, you're going to have to construct a self that, uh, you know, attenuates to those values. And, and if parents have done that themselves, right, in their own families, then that's going to carry down with the kids also. So what's valued in this family is a person who studies hard, makes a lot of money, becomes a professional, buys a house, has a couple cars and a dog and some kids, and then their kids do the same thing. Um, where the actual self of maybe the people in that family have very different loves, values, and wants and needs, but aren't seen or valued for those particular parts of themselves. So they disappear them in order to get the love they need. So I think those are the places where I see it come out. That's why I think it comes out often with school or religious observance. Like what's valued in this house is how you observe your religion. 
um, and how you connect and how you look in the community in a particular way. Um, whereas perhaps, you know, some of those kids would connect in very different ways and, and to meaningful practice, to, you know, deeper ideas, to more musical, maybe expressions of, of religiosity. So I think, yeah, whatever the values that the parents think are the most important are the selves that the kids are going to create to get the love and, and affirmation that they need from what I can see and what I can understand, even from my own experience. Um, so let's go back to the quote, because um, I want to just share a, a, a little um, seedling of where this work begins, because uh, this is harder than it sounds. How right. do you move from pseudo self to solid self? Right. So again, the scene is that they read a review in a magazine that reflects back to them the immaturity that they right. did. And if you remember, the band says it, right? Did I say yeah. that? Did I actually say my God? And, and they're like, yeah, you, you, you kind of did, right? Um, so this is from Dr. Michael Kerr. He's a retired, uh, semi-retired psychiatrist and, and uh, systems thinker in the States. He says, to become more mature, to develop more solid self, one first has to understand how immature one is. Mm. And he goes, and then the work begins. Nice. So it, it means, you know, it, it means having a reckoning actually with our immaturity. And the problem with this is that most of us are just too myopic and blind. You know, one of the things that, um, you know, I, I might've shared the story with you. I had a roommate, um, Alisa Kuzmanov, if you're listening, hello. Uh, I had a roommate <laughs> in Montreal. She was my roommate for like three years. We were living in the plateau and we were very good friends. So, so we're living together. And one day I said to her, you know, we're just like, what, it's two in the morning. We're having talks like roommates do. And I say to her, you know, oh, you know, it's so hard sometimes Elisa, because um, I'm such a, I'm such a sensitive feminine, I'm such a sensitive feminine character. And she, she, she looks at me and she goes, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, yeah. And I, this is when I, Ellie, I was in my bands and I fashioned myself as a real kind of sensitive Lou Reed type poet. The Renaissance she, man. Yeah. A, a real Renaissance man. And she looks at me and she goes, she goes, you exude masculine energy like I don't know what the hell you're talking about. And I'm looking at her like, no, no, no. Like, you know, like when I, and she's like, no, no, let me tell you what you're really like. <laughs> and it really was surprising to, to hear it. So that's one example. Another example, same by the way situation. It was another roommate. My brother comes in from out of town. He's my younger brother. And um, they're all relating to him like an adult. And I still relate to him like he's a kid because I saw him as a, as a, as a kid, really. Right. Um, and I was convinced by it. Like, I mean, this is the way you have to treat him. Because... So my roommate looks at me and he goes, why do you treat your brother that way? I'm like, well, what way? Well, you treat him like he's a bit of an idiot. Like, uh, I, he, he's a really, he's doing, and, and, and like Avram, he's been living on his own more than you even. And he's doing all these things. Like, I don't know. And so I said to them, well, guys, come on. I'm trying to, you know, I'm like, no, first of all, you're rude. And you're not even nice to him. And I did not see it that way. I saw myself as the older brother mm. and it really stung. It was one of the catalysts that led to growth in my relationship with my brother. My point mm. is it, it's very hard for one person to sit in a room by themselves and go, what's my immaturity? What is my pseudo self? It, it often happens in relationship. It could happen with a therapist or a coach. It can happen with, uh, uh, a spouse, but it has to be enough of a crucible. There has to be enough honesty there for someone to look at you square in the face and say, I'm going to tell you something. It's going to sting, but I'm going to, I'm going to share this with you anyways. And I think right. that when I'm doing therapy with people, 
one of the elements of, you know, people say, what's the difference between therapy and talking to a friend? I think one of the differences, I don't care about you in that way. I care right. about you. But trust me, if you stop paying me, I don't care about you that much. <laughs> you, right. you, you won't be in my practice much longer. And right. it's because of my lack of love and care for you in that way that I could look at you straight in the eye in a session and say, I want to reflect back on you what I'm saying. And this might sting. And I see that as my job. Right. Okay. Yep. And, I, and I think that that is an important part of at least the therapy that I do. And it helps people get in touch with that pseudo self. Okay. So I think that when you think about this film, how all of these crucibles um, forced people to sort of look at themselves, right? Um, mourn, get sad, get angry, get their hearts broken, but they all sort of come out of it in a very, uh, what, what's that guy, Ellie, the um, Through the Dark Night of the Forest guy we talk about, he writes those books. Oh, who's the Robert, philosopher? Oh, Robert Bly? Yeah, but no, but Robert Bly bases it on, who's the guy that you go into the forest and you come out? Iron John? Guy. The myth guy, who, who's the myth guy, the Jungian myth guy, he writes all those, uh, oh my God. I don't know, I don't know who you're talking about. I'll, I'll think of it in a second, I'll, you know. Um, <laughs> so they all have these sort of dark nights of the soul and uh, the way the film ends, right. I think, is that they're just a little bit more in touch with who their core, what, what their core sense of self is. And I think that it, it, you know, but it always starts though with grappling with the immaturity. Um, and that's something that a lot of people aren't willing to do. I think that's so great also because William is set up to be the catalyst and supported by um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character where he says to them, don't be friends with them. Don't be friends with them. You should always have a little bit of healthy distance to look at the situation. But he's like, the moment you get into it, like they're going to want to like charm you and basically like lure you into their world so that you don't talk about, you don't confront them with the things that they need to be confronted with. And he's so hard on William like that. Like, what do you, oh man, you became friends with them. Like, what are you doing? But ultimately, when he actually is able to speak with distance about what was really going on in that group, he's the one that, even though he's the youngest of all of them, he's the one that catalyzes all of them to have to take a look at themselves. Um, and I think it describes very much what you were saying about having to have a certain amount of like, I'm not friends with you. And this is why I can speak straight. Um, and, and that journalistic different uh, distance or therapeutic distance that's needed to be able to actually be straight with another person and how powerful that can be. Because yeah, sometimes it's the comment from someone who doesn't know you that will propel you into an utterly different way of being. I've shared this at, one of the, at a few of the Jewish Family Institute events. Um, right. uh, I, I've often said to parents in a room, uh, when a client says to me, wow, you got through my, to my teenager. I don't know how you did it. Like you really are good with teenagers. How do you do it? And what I'll say, what I'll say to them is, you know, the real trick, you know what the trick is? I don't love them. Right. <laughs> you know, they think it's like all, all this training. And so it really isn't. It's, it's mm -hmm. that, you know what? 
you worry and love them. And that's part of the problem. Mm. It's a conundrum. It's one of the conundrums of parenting. It's the love and the worry that gets in the way of seeing and hearing and understanding your kid accurately. Okay. Let's move on to something else. Um, Ellie, unless you have a theme you want to discuss. No, go. I want to hear what you have in your notes. I'm so curious. So again, you know, uh, this is one of these things uh, in these films that is subtle, but I think it really creates the whole story arc of the entire film. And if you don't understand this, it really doesn't actually make any sense. So one of our friends, uh, um, one of my favorite people, um, really in Toronto, um, whenever I get a chance to spend time with Atara Derek, she's mm-hmm. uh, she's just she's the best. Yeah. And Atara uh, made a comment yesterday on Facebook. Uh, I don't know if you saw it on my yeah, post about I did. this film. Yeah. And she said, when I saw the film in the '90s, what did she say? Uh, the mother's character. What yeah, the, she I, said like Francis McDormand's character made so much more sense to me now than it did when I first saw the movie because she has kids. Yeah. Right. And uh, I absolutely agree with her when I watch films now as a parent. Oh, man, it hits me in the feels more yeah. than it did when I was a young. But but there was something that I, I mentioned to Tara on Facebook that I want to address here. So the first thing is, yes, yes, yes. We're all parents. And we love our kids and we worry and we relate to the mother because we worry about our kids. But there's something going on here. And I think it's important to talk about this. We've talked about this before. Yeah. So, Ellie, as you know, in the film, the mother isn't divorced. The mother is a widow because her husband died, I believe, of a heart attack, right? Doesn't he say that in the film? He says his dad died of a heart attack. He, it's, it's a quick line. So. He says yeah. it to, um, oh, oh, he's, you know who he says it to? When he's walking with Russell um, and he's like, you know, I'm right. always talking about me. Yes. Tell me about you. That's right. That's right? right. And he it was just a very quick thing that my dad died of a heart attack. Okay. And my mom was left to raise me. So let, let's think about this here for a second. You're a mother of two kids. Your husband just died. It's the 70s. Maybe she's working, but even if she is. She is. She's a college professor. Right. But was she then? Right. You see, she could have been doing her PhD, Mm. right? Or her postdoc. Um, Who knows? But whatever the case may be, it's the 1970s. I guarantee you, if she, he was probably working too. So now you've got a one-income family and, and, you know, you're grieving, you're grieving the loss of your husband, plus your kids and Without understanding something called emotional shockwaves after death, you can't mm-hmm. understand the mother's anxiety. And that's the only thing I was sort of pushing back on a Tara's comment, which is, yes, we all have worry about our kids. But when Dr. Bowen talked about the emotional shockwave after death, that's a different kind of anxiety. Yeah. Okay. Or, or one could say it's a more pervasive anxiety. And that's what the mother has, in my humble opinion. Mm. Uh, any thoughts for just before we get into it, what, what, when you, when you think about the mother's anxiety, you know, controlling the food at the beginning of the film, the music, they trying to control everything to make sure what, what her kids are safe. Right. Yeah. So. And she's the mother and father role. She really feels, I think the pressure of that, of being on her own to raise these kids and try to help them turn out great. She's also a college professor. So she probably sees what kids are into on college campus and is terrified that her kids are going to get into that also. And, um, and she's smart and she's trying to like, you know, it's kind of interesting because I think about some of the parenting today and, and how both of her kids really end up leaving in a certain way. She, they do the one thing that she was hoping they would never do, which is they go out there into the big bad world all by themselves and, and just go to try to figure it out on their own. And, and so it's really fascinating to me that um, the one thing she's trying to prevent, they, they sort of both end up, end up doing. 
Okay, well, you stole my next point. Sorry. <laughs> but, but, but that's, no, it's a great setup. Ellie, it is one of the great conundrums, and it's why mm. I love family systems theory, because there's all these counterintuitive ideas that I never really thought about before, but once I understood the theory, I was like, oh my mm -hmm. God, yeah. So for example, what you're touching on is fascinating. You grew up in a family, right, Ellie? You grew up in a family, and your parents save, save, save money. They don't spend on anything. And you see all your friends getting toys and stuff. And you're always fighting with your parents. And you say to yourself, you're 15. And you say, when I'm going to be a mother, I'm going to give my kids everything because I don't want them to suffer the way I suffered. And I don't want them to fight the way I fought. And so you finally have kids and you live up to your promise and you give your kids everything. And they're fighting and fighting and fighting with each other because why did my brother get this and you're constantly trying to get them more stuff to stop them from fighting and then you're it's two in the morning and you're in your bed with your spouse you're like how the hell am i here right it's it's it, so it's exactly what you're saying the very thing the mother didn't want which is to lose her kids to the outside world her anxious focus caused a cutoff right People who don't understand emotional cutoff, I don't want to get into emotional cutoff too much here. We've talked about it in other episodes. We'll talk about it again. You have to understand emotional cutoff is a reciprocal thing. It's mm -hmm. the mother and her daughter doing it together. It's not just right. the mother's anxiety. Because by the way, the daughter's grieving her father's death too, just like For the son. Sure. Right. Okay. And if someone, you know, if you're working with someone after the death of a parent, okay, if you're preparing the system with aunts and cousins and uncles, if you're preparing for an emotional shockwave, you'll get less of it, I guess is what, what I would say. But if you try to get on with life too quickly, if you try to get past the morning too quickly, what's going to happen is all that fear and anxiety is going to go underground. It's going to come out in a maladaptive way. And I think what happens here is the mother's holding on too tight. Mm -hmm. And any parent that knows with their teenagers, when they hold on too tight, right, you either have a child who is so sick that needs the parents' intervention. We, we know right. kids like that, right? Mm -hmm. they, they, they don't know how to function without being connected to the parents. Or you have the opposite, which is basically anything you stand for, I stand for the opposite. Right. Anything you say is good, I say is bad. Okay. Now the kids think that's maturity, but all it is is immaturity. It's a pseudo self. Right. Okay? And so, um, so I, I think that your point is just so fantastic. I mean, it's just, it's, it's this counterintuitive thing that drives parents crazy, but we have to understand that we are co-creating this reality. And what is right. um, so lovely about um, the film, and this is what I want to point out. This is the, my main takeaway from, from this film. It's really important, Ellie. So I've got a deep breath here. Okay. <laughs> what, when we talk about cutoff or fusion in families, it's a continuum. People tend to think of uh, mental health issues as binary. Depression, no depression. Right. Anxiety, no anxiety. That's not how it works. It's a continuum. Now, if you're too far on one side, let's say so much anxiety you can't function, that's not good. But take this mother. So this mother is so anxious, she drives her kids away. But what happens at the end of the film? Her daughter comes back with her son, right? And how does the, what happens on the balcony? Ellie, what happens in the balcony between mother and daughter? Yeah, I mean, it's it's actually a very sweet, awkward reunion. Like, they, 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 don't, really they don't sustain the cutoff. Right. 
the the mother the mother let her daughter go in the car to become a stewardess Mm -hmm. and as she was letting her go she didn't say don't you ever come back you are dead to me meaning that that not only did she want to keep her daughter safe but she took it as a personal slight. And I know parents, I've worked with parents like this, right. where it's kind of like, and now you're out of my life. And they do that to a certain degree because they feel the kid is doing this to them, mm-hmm. right? It's a personal thing. Right. The wisdom of the mother in this film was that I have to let her go. It's killing me. I don't right. want her to go. But <laughs> Although to- she's like standing on the lawn, she's like, she'll be back. And what? then you just hear her daughter go, wee. But but in the car and, uh, driving it's, away. It's brilliant. But Ellie, this is this is what's so critical about this point. When David Freeman, when David, Dr. David Freeman, my co-author, would when he would say there is a difference between being worried about your kid and acting worried based right. on the, so there's a difference between in your kishkas and your gut, I'm really worried about my kid. And then living that worry out, meaning he said that it's the doctor, it's the Viktor Frankl quote. You have a choice between stimulus and response. Now, look, I'm a parent, Ellie. <laughs> yeah, you're a parent. <laughs> it is really hard <laughs> to not act on that worry. But yeah. <laughs> if everything is a variance, a continuum, it means that even if we do act out, we have choices in how we act out. Right. I would argue that, uh, that Anita was able to leave at 18 and come back again and reunite with her mother because the mother didn't hold on too tightly at the, at the very moment the daughter yeah. was leaving. The mother left just a little bit of the door open that when you want to come back, right, you're welcome. I have worked with families where there is no space. The idea right. is you did something to this family that is so beyond the You are out and that can continue on. Look, I, I'm working with a few families in my practice right now. It can go on for two, three generations. So if you mm-hmm. think that it always just heals in the end, I can tell you for a fact, it does not. Right, And so that scene for any parent who sees their children doing something that's breaking their heart, yeah, always, always important to keep the door ajar just a little bit. And what you say to your kid, so you could say everything, you could say, I don't approve of this. This is not how I would live my life, whatever you could, but somehow keep the door ajar just a mm. little bit so that when things change, there's a chance for a reconciliation. And mm. by the way, this will also help someone like Anita when she has a child to be programmed to know that your kids will disappoint you and break your heart, but to leave the door open a bit. Anyways, right. um, so that's my thoughts about mm. emotional shockwaves after death and how do you leave the door open for a reconciliation? I love it. And I want to just run, you know, just for a moment before we start to wrap up back to something that you said right at the beginning, which is you talked about co-creating a reality. And to me, it's so important that we co-create every relationship we have. And I think so often that idea gets lost in either the, you know, oppressed or the oppressor or the you know, the toxic person and the victim, but you co-create every single relationship you have. You are part of that dynamic in whatever way. Um, and, and part of the secret sauce of being able to change the next relationship or change your going forward is like you say, like accepting the reality that you were part of your reality. And, and I think that's such a hard thing for people to do right now, the way that people talk about 
you're the evil person and I'm the person that was subjected to your evilness and I have no um, responsibility whatsoever for being in this relationship or this situation. And I, I, I just want to point to that because I think it's so important that, that, that the mother and the daughter were co-creating that situation together. Look, I, I think that um, if you go into your bookstore right now and you look at the titles of any book, you get a sense of the cultural zeitgeist of what's happening at any period in time. You just go into a bookstore and see, because what happens is the people who are selling books, I, you know, as an author, I can tell you this, your, your publisher will tell you, use this cover and these words because mm. we've done the marketing research and this is what people are thinking. Right. And right now, what people are thinking is toxicity. Mm. The world we live in right now is a world of there's toxic things that are bad for you. And these are these good things. And it's true for ideas and it's true for people. Right. Um, this is not a family systems. It's not a systems way of thinking. So one of the things I encourage people to at least consider is if you want to have a more, in my opinion, expansive way, I think a healthier way of looking at your life, there are books out there written about family systems theory that runs counter to this idea that there are good people and bad people, that there is toxic ideas and healthy ideas. Uh, um, maybe Ellie, one day as a, you know, from pop parenting, uh, I can put down a curated list of books for lay people about mm. family systems theory, because yeah, I really be think you know, any of my clients that have delved into some of this stuff, they always, almost always, Ellie, they send me an email saying, how come no one ever shared these ideas with them? Right. I mean, this just makes sense, but why didn't anyone ever share you know, I hear this a lot, Ellie, with um, women uh, when, let's say, their mother, there's an affair, right? And so their mother leaves the husband and they grow up thinking, my dad is a SOB. Right. My mom was this innocent person. And right. I got to be careful when I date to not pick SOBs. Right. And so they're working with me after the, their ninth failed relationship. And I'm right. like, well, have you ever thought for a second that the affair was symptomatic of a co-creation that happened. How can you say that? My father, I'm not, I'm not all I'm saying. Can, right. What do you Can think? we just open and, that door? Yeah, let's just, let's just talk <laughs> about this for a second. And so, and, and, and I'm yeah. thinking of a couple of people I've been working with over the past year. And when, and if my client is open, not as anxious and is curious and goes there, they always come back to me and go, oh my God, this makes sense but my mother could never hear it or my father right. could never, right. can, can never hear it. Yeah. So what, what I would say is I think part of this work is arming yourself with a body of knowledge. Okay. That provides a bit of a North star for you. And mm -hmm. unfortunately right now, the body of knowledge is one of very sort of polarized sort of ways of thinking. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it's helpful in our schools. I don't think it's yeah, helpful in our parenting courses. And I mean, for me, what's so interesting about what you just said also is you can have healthy ideas, but they're shared in an anxious way. And you can have toxic ideas that are shared in a non-anxious way. And now people are super confused because they're reacting to the underlying emotionality of how the idea is shared. But that doesn't mean that the idea is a good idea. You know what I mean? Like, I, I think it's such an interesting, I like conversation that that cracks open for me around. Sometimes it's not the information that's being shared that people are reacting to. 
if they're used to anxious focus, then whatever idea is shared in an anxious way is what they're going to think is the truth. And if they're, you know, I, I just think that there's so many interesting things about this to me that now make me think about how, not just what information is being shared, but how it's being shared is what people are reacting and responding to. I would, Ellie, you know, I have to sit with that a little bit. I'm going to have to re-listen to this podcast to sort of digest some of this here. I don't think I've fully caught it. What I think would be great, if you can capture that idea and in mm -hmm. another podcast, when we find a film where that that theme comes up to bring it up again. So we can yeah. sort of, because I think there's something very important about uh, what you're saying. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm, I'm thinking in my world, what, what we talk about is uh, content versus process. So people come, yeah. and they talk about the content. He said this, can you believe he said that? Can you believe it? And of course it sounds horrible, right? <laughs> and then he'll say, but she said, she did this. Right. Can you believe it? And what I'm thinking of is, you know, how, this fight keeps them connected. That's the right. process part. They're thinking content, right. you know? I'm thinking how anxiety binds these two people and that's how they express right. their love. Right. And I think you're, and it's a very subtle thing, mm -hmm. but I find in our world today, we're very caught up in content. And I think that's kind of what you're talking about, ideas that are toxic or healthier, but that's content stuff. Right, but um, what people are actually bonding over is shared anxiety. Right, it's the whole, it's, it's the, guy, the David Snarch idea, which is just so amazing when I first heard it, which you said, He's like, you know, so long as a couple comes into my office and they're screaming at each other, I know, I know the embers are still there. They care enough. He's like, it's right. when they come in and they're quiet. I know divorce is right around the corner because, yep. and that's process. That's pro because you, it, young therapists who get caught up in the content, oh, I can't believe they're saying this stuff to each other. Yeah. Right. They get caught up in the content and then the, the sessions just go down because they focus on the content. But right. in fact, what David argued about is that the fact that they're fighting means there's still fuel in the tank in terms of they're trying to hold on to something here. And yes. the way, it's maladaptive, but it is the way they connect. Right. Anyways, Ellie, hold on to that it. thought because I think okay. it's an important one. Okay. There, there, by the way, there is a ton of more I things know, in this film. I know, there's so much more we could talk about in this. Every single character is so delicious and like meaty and yummy. And we didn't even talk about the soundtrack. No. Oh, we didn't. And so by good. the way, for those who are still listening, if you're still here, um, the Pop Parenting Podcast is now number 18 of uh, podcasts that Jewish podcast you should li listen to. And we started off, I think, at what, number 38? Something, something like that. Yeah, at the beginning of the year. Okay. Yeah. Moving Exciting. on up. Yep. <laughs> so thank you. Let's say thank you to everybody who's been listening, everyone who's subscribed, everybody who sends us messages everyone who tweets us out or shares anything that we do, please keep doing that. And we really do want to continue hearing from all of you. If you have a film that you'd like us to take a look at, to schmooze about, or any feedback about anything you've heard in the podcast, or you want to get in touch with myself or with Avram, um, all of the information is in the, in the liner notes. Um, please like, subscribe, share it with friends, and um, we'll see everybody next week. Very good. Have a good Thanks, week. Avram. Bye.